Now that's a cool story from around the world. Sam, in the video, has been a part of Wheaton Bible Church for about a year. And he leads our Khmer or Cambodian ministry here at Wheaton Bible Church. We have several of those nationality or ethnic ministries going on at the church, and it's really cool to see what God is doing among our Khmer Cambodian brothers and sisters here at the church. We showed this video today because Sam sets up where we're going uh, this morning. This is week number two in our four-week series on how Jesus responds to four different people in the Gospel of John. Last week, we looked at Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1 and talked about his skepticism and how we counteract that in our own lives. Now today, we go to the beginning of John chapter 2, and we're looking at Jesus' encounter, his first encounter in the Gospel of John with his mother Mary. And we're going to see what Jesus has to say about what he offers those who seek him and find him, just like Sam shared with us in the video. So out of respect for God's word, would you stand with me as I read John chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and then that day, the bridegroom footed the bill for the wedding. I need to tell you I resent that because I have five daughters, and it's changed in our culture today. (laughs) So this is why he calls aside the bridegroom in verse 10 and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. This is a fascinating story, a fascinating uh, uh, account. But this story is not what it seems on the surface. As a matter of fact, I missed the richness and the depth of this story for a a number of years. Because when I came to this passage, when I spoke on this passage, 
I thought this passage was pointing us to Jesus, and it certainly is, and telling us about Jesus' supernatural power, his stunning compassion, and his concern for the details of our lives. Now, all of that is here, but there is so much more to what's going on than just that. So, for example, let's go to verse 11. And I want you to notice that Jesus uses the word signs. This miracle is a sign. Now, a sign is a symbol. It's a picture. It's a parable, if you will, pointing to something greater. So, John is telling us at the end of this section on this miracle of Jesus that this isn't just a miracle, this is a sign. I mean, think of a billboard along a highway that isn't Disney World, but points to the greater reality of Disney World ahead. That's what John is telling us. But I want you to notice the word first. This is Jesus' first sign, his first miracle. Now, I find this interesting because if Jesus wasn't God and his disciples, like the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, if his disciples are making this up and trying to impress the world with Jesus Christ, but none of it is true, they certainly wouldn't have started with this as Jesus' first miracle. They would have started with something big, like Jesus walking on water, Jesus raising the dead, Jesus mowing down the Roman army or floating from city to city in midair. But they don't start with something big, which is why, by the way, you can trust the Bible. What they start with is this story of Jesus changing 180 gallons of water into wine at a party. Uh, so we have this miracle uh, to meet social embarrassment. I, I mean, what did it really matter in the grand scheme of things as the, this wedding party ran out of wine? And so the fact that this was a sign and the fact that it was the, the first sign, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did he launch his career with this? Why is this particular miracle so important that it was first? And commentator after commentator uh, tell us that the answer is why Jesus came. This sign reveals why our Lord came, what his endgame was, if you will, or what his endgame is, what he brings to those of us like Sam who seek him and find him. And so here in this miracle, when Jesus turns the water into wine, Jesus is declaring, I am the Lord of the feast. Come to bring you joy. Lord of the feast. And my mission is to bring you wedding joy. As another has put it, what Jesus is really saying here is wherever I step, flowers bloom. Wherever I go, music breaks out. 
Wherever I am, there has to be joy. And all of this points to what the Old Testament, the book of Revelation tell us, will be the experience of the believer in the presence of Jesus at the new heavens and the new earth, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Where the believer in Christ as the bride of Christ will be united to the, the groom, to Jesus Christ himself. But I want you to understand, Jesus is not merely talking about future joy, he's talking about present joy. Now let me explain this, let me demonstrate this, let me prove this by working through our passage backwards. So what I'd like to do is start with verses 6 through 10 and look at what they teach us about what it is that Jesus brings. So let's start in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have, man, you've saved the best uh, for last. So Jesus here talks to the waitstaff, the servants. And says, in effect, hey, this is no longer water, it's wine, and I want you to take a sample of it to the master of the banquet. Now, the master of the banquet was the MC, the master of ceremonies. And in the first century world, weddings were a bigger deal than they are today because they were uh, often community-wide events, regional-wide events that went on not just for hours, but for days, lasting up to a week or so. So this master of the banquet that had been hired by the bridegroom was a big deal. I, I want you to think a high-priced DJ. He probably had a booming voice. He was full of energy. He had administrative management skills because his was the sole responsibility that each and every one of the guests would have an exceptional experience each and every day of the wedding feast. But the wine runs out. And Jesus steps in and saves this guy's hide. <laughs> his reputation. His future. By miraculously producing an enormous quantity of wine that was probably some of the best wine among the best, if not the best wine that's ever been served. Now, let me comment on that. The Jewish rabbis said, wine is the joy of the feast, and where there is wine, there is joy. Wine here in John chapter 2 is a sign of the joy that Jesus brings. But it, there's two pieces to this joy. The joy Jesus brings at his first coming. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause not just joy, but great joy. Jesus is being born to bring us joy. This is the first coming. 
But we also see joy related to Jesus' second coming over and over in the Bible. For example, it's prophesied in Jeremiah, where we read, They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. The young of the flocks and the herds, they will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then the young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. In his first coming, Jesus appeared to bring us joy. In his second coming, that joy will be consummated, that joy will be... Uh, perfected. So Jesus Christ has come, according to this passage, to bring you joy, now and for eternity. And that's the sign. That's what this miracle points to. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are thinking, well, Rob, okay, but I really think you're over-interpreting this passage. And some of you might be thinking, hey, this emphasis on wine and wine drinking runs the risk of encouraging alcohol abuse. And let me just say, that's not what I'm about because what the Bible teaches us relative to alcohol consumption is that alcohol is to be enjoyed only in moderation. But if you think I'm over-interpreting, let me back up just a little more and let's go to verses 6 and 7. Nearby stood these six stone water jars, and they were the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That's important. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said, fill the jars. So they filled them to the brim. Brim is important here. Now the water in the stone jars was used for Old Testament Jewish ceremonial washings so the Jews could wash their hands, wash other part of their bodies to purify themselves before they offered their grain or animal sacrifices. Uh, And they were designed as a picture to show the Jews every time they washed themselves that they were unclean before a holy God. And therefore, a sacrifice had to be made for their uncleanliness, for for their sin, uh, both internal sin and external sin. So when our Lord turns the water into wine and fills the jars to the brim, he's symbolizing that the old order, the Old Testament, has passed away. And all the cleansings, all the ceremonies, all the religious purifications, all the sacrifices have now been fulfilled, filled to the brim in the perfect life of Jesus Christ and his perfect death. So this is all a wonderful picture of the old order passing away. We're going to see this in a moment in the book of Revelation and the new order coming. And Jesus is announcing this Now, I want to go back in time when I was a non-Christian and I, like Sam, was seeking Christ. And the fact that I didn't understand 
this when I was seeking Christ was a problem for me. As a matter of fact, I was in college and I kept hitting the brakes about converting to Christ because I was having fun in college, man. I loved the party scene. I loved having a good time. I was a fun-loving guy. And in my mind, even though the Christians I had gotten to know were, I thought, really cool, smart guys, there was something in my mind that said, Rob, if you do this, God is a cosmic killjoy and you're not going to have fun anymore. And part of that was I had men in high school, a couple guys that were Christians, and they were pretty uptight, buttoned up, rigid, stern. And honestly, I didn't want to stop, stop having fun, so I kept hitting the brakes. But God opens my eyes, God saves me, I'm barely two weeks in to knowing Christ. And I experienced such a transformation of my worldview, such a transformation of my values, such a, a joy and a peace and a, and a contentment that even though I lost every single friend I had because of my radical, dramatic uh, conversion, I realized that my definitions of joy, happiness, and fun were so superficial, I did not realize what I was missing. And C.S. Lewis described me so very well when he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, I, Rabu, had settled for playing in the mud puddles when the God of the universe was offering me infinite joy, holiday at the beach. And now, four and a half decades later, it's that joy that has been an incredible rock and reality in my life, even in my darkest moments. Now let me make a comment about this joy because I don't want you to miss this. This joy isn't merely... When Jesus is uh, uh, in this parable wrapped in a miracle, when Jesus is announcing the joy he is, he is bringing, he's not talking about us walking around being in a good mood all the time. He's not talking about the the buzz when your team wins, and God will take a win for the Bears whenever, you know. <laughs> it's been a while. That's not the kind of joy uh, that, being, uh, that is being pictured here. Rather, the joy here is this tenacious, tenacious rest and peace, this confidence that is the ballast in your boat, the anchor in your storm, the friend in your loneliness. And his name is Jesus. And all through the Bible, joy, ultimate joy, tenacious joy, is connected to Jesus. For example, look at this prophecy. I love this, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast. Notice a feast of food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord, the Lord has spoken. Do you see this connection between the first coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the offer of joy that is on the table for you? 
Now, let me give you a theological context for this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but do you realize that God is the happiest being in the universe? That God is infinitely happy. And God's infinite joy extends back into eternity past before the foundation of the world. And for all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have experienced the shared joy of deity, of love, of beauty among the triune God. And that joy one day overflowed in an explosion of joy called creation. Another redemption and another to come, the final restoration of the heavens and the earth. And this is why this is Jesus' first miracle. He wants you to know his priority is to bring you joy. A confidence uh, that for me transcended the death of my first wife. A cancer diagnosis years later. Uh, I want this joy for you. It's why Jesus has come. It's the point of verses 6 through 10. Jesus has come to bring us joy. Now let's back up and let's go to verses 3 to 5 to see how Jesus brings this joy. This gets interesting. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, honestly, Jesus seems a bit snarky here, right? Uh, snarky in a way that he never is anyplace else in any of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus is never irritable. Jesus is never I I I impatient. So uh, let me dig into this so we can get a better sense of what's going on. Can you guys help me move forward? I'm stuck. Good. I want to focus on this verse for a moment. Jesus begins with woman. What a way to talk to your mother, right? But actually, this is not, Jesus is not being rude. He's not being disrespectful. As a matter of fact, later in the Gospel of John, when Jesus' arms are outstretched and he's hanging on the uh, cross and utter agony, Jesus speaks to his mother again and he addresses her with this word woman and then proceeds to tell her who will take care of him, her. So when we come to woman, woman is not a term of disrespect. Jesus is not being rude. It's like ma'am. 
Uh, Some have pointed out that the reason Jesus says woman rather than mother is because Jesus wants Mary to understand that when he does this miracle he's about to do, he's not doing it because she is his mother and she has asked him, but because he is God in the flesh. But let's go on. Then Jesus says, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus seems troubled. Jesus, it seems like there's something else going on in Jesus' mind. And it's all wrapped up in this word, hour. Now we read this and we think Jesus is saying to Mary, you know, my time for my public ministry, my time to perform miracles hasn't come yet. And that would be incorrect. Because the term hour Anywhere it's used in the Gospel of John relative to Jesus refers to the cross. Jesus is using this term as a metaphor for his death. So Mary says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus responds, my time to die hasn't come. And Jesus reveals, while everyone is drinking a a cup of joy at this wedding feast that's going on and on and on, Jesus is drinking a, a cup of sorrow as the weight of his coming death hits him. In other words, what Jesus is revealing, the joy he brings only comes to us through his death. The second part of the sign. Because Jesus announces in this very first miracle that there will be a day when I will die. And he's troubled. Now let me add something else. Here Jesus Christ isn't just the Lord of the feast. He isn't the the Lord of the festival. He isn't just the the Lord of joy. Jesus is also the ultimate bridegroom. And he is contemplating that he has to lay down his life in order to marry the bride. And you and I as believers in Christ, the church is the bride of Christ. But it will cost him his life so that we can experience the wedding feast that the Bible promises us in the presence of God. Now let me go to the book of Revelation. And that's exactly what we read. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, that would be you and me, the Lamb is Jesus, obviously, has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now that's Revelation chapter 19. Let's skip chapter 20. Let's go to chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now verse 2, I saw the holy city, now get this, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You and I are the bride, Jesus is the husband. And we continue 
We will be his people, and God himself will be our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, here it is, the old order, the water has passed away. And the wine has started to flow. And here Jesus, here John, the apostle in the book of Revelation, is announcing the joy, the infinite perfect joy that will be ours forever and ever. Now what I want to do is I want to make three applications and then we're done. And here's what I'd like. I'd like to make a deal with you. I'd like you to discuss these applications in your life groups. Because when we get together with other believers in Jesus Christ and we're open and honest about what we're trying to do relative to applying God's Word to our life, man, the Holy Spirit opens things up by other people's questions, other people's comments. So discuss these three applications in your life groups. Here we go. Application number one, admit you're out. You're out of joy. You're out of the wine Jesus freely offers you that he announces in his very first miracle. Uh, You're out because you've blown it and you feel guilty, or you leak and you feel empty, or you stressed and you feel angry. Uh, Bring it to your friends, admit it, confess it, talk about it. Bring it to Jesus, admit it to him. And every time it happens again, keep coming to Jesus and ask him to open the eyes of your heart. Ask him to change your heart and keep seeking him until he does. But we don't get there unless we admit our shortage. Because Jesus wants to fill the jar of your life to the brim. Or maybe it's, a, it's just one area in your life where you keep failing. Uh, you're stuck. You feel overwhelmed. Uh, it, it's um, ongoing sin in your life. And you know it. Well, admit it. Stop pretending. We as Christians pretend way too much. But ask yourself a question. What is the lie I'm believing that's underneath my behavior? And and identify that. Think about that. What is the lie that I'm believing that causes me to give in, causes me to chase the sidle, causes me to capitulate, causes me to uh, blow my top? And then find verses that can be helpful and you memorize those verses and you press those verses down into your soul. And so when that temptation comes, that test comes, you go to those verses and you say them out loud because you've pressed them into your life and you know that all of us, until we're face-to-face with Jesus, will have areas in our life where we're out. Here's the second application. Seek to experience an underlying experience, Jesus' love. Now think about this parable wrapped in a miracle. Salvation here is described as new wine, a wine that brings joy. Christianity here is described as a feast. 
Jesus is both the master of the banquet and, and the bridegroom. And you and me as believers in Christ who are seeking Christ and, and finding Christ, all those that seek Christ and find Christ are described as the bride. Now what are these? These are metaphors. These are sensory, sensory images. Why? Because Christianity isn't something we merely believe, it's something we experience. As Jonathan Edwards once said, there's a big difference between knowing honey exists and tasting honey. And we have this story that's a parable, a sign parable, if you will, so that we might have this sensation of experiencing Jesus. Do you sense Jesus' presence and acceptance in your life? So it keeps you from being driven. It keeps you from not being so easily angered. Do you sense the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of, of God in your life so you don't harbor grudges or bitterness and you forgive people? Uh, do you sense, I mean, do you experience, is it real to you, the sovereignty of God in your life? Uh, so in those moments when you're afraid and, and you've got these feelings of fear assaulting your heart, you can press back. In John chapter 2, Jesus Christ is promising you that his priority is to bring you joy. And we have this incredible picture, and I would be remiss if I, 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 I didn't love it. You see what Jesus, or didn't mention it, you see what Jesus is doing here is promising you that the feelings and the desires the bride and groom have for each other. And I think as a pastor, having done a fair amount of weddings over the years, of that moment, the, the wide bride comes into the room, and she's not wide. The bride comes into the room, and she stands in the back, and some of you women are starting to tear up. And the bride and the groom see each other for the first time. Jesus is promising that desire, that joy will be yours forever. Do not wait. Do not wait until heaven to experience it. Third, and I'm done. Take responsibility for your joy. Do what Mary does. This is so fascinating here. Mary is rebuffed by Jesus. Woman, my time hasn't come already. Leave me alone. Now, Mary doesn't fully understand who Jesus is, but she remembers what the angels announced at the birth of Jesus, and she knows Jesus is no ordinary man. So she's a little confused. She's got this thing going on. Um, and yet, regardless of how Jesus responds to her, she doesn't say to the servants, oh, he's being a jerk, leave him alone. Or he's had too much to drink, obviously. Or he's confused. No, Mary says, whatever. Whatever he says, do it. Mary is saying, we can't understand him, but he is always right. 
And maybe that's exactly how you feel with Jesus Christ now. You feel that he has rebuffed you, that he's ignoring your prayer, that you're going through this deal and it really hurts and it's driving you crazy. And why in the world would a good God let you go through that? Mary doesn't hit back. Mary doesn't strike back. Mary doesn't give up. When Jesus Christ delays, it's a glorious delay. All other wines are inferior to his. Only Jesus will satisfy, cure the restlessness of your heart. Now, yes, your life is going to be hard. I never want to underestimate that. My life has been extraordinarily hard in several ways. But in Jesus, you have the power over your joy. You have the power over your joy. Jesus sips sorrow so you can drink joy. Now and forever. And friends, the choice is yours. He has come to bring you joy. It's a matter of faith. Let's pray. So, Father, we are amazed what you have done for us in your Son. And, Jesus, we are amazed at your love for us. We are amazed at this announcement Uh, this first miracle that's a parable. We did not see this coming. We wouldn't have anticipated this. We can't make this kind of stuff up. And so we come to you and ask that you would work in our lives that what you offer we might enjoy. What you give us we might experience. And we pray in the wonderful, the sacred, the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.